jump in um, and I will start us off by praying. Father, in heaven, we look to you as your children in need of your guidance and wisdom today. I pray that we would see you as you truly are. Uh, we would desire that your kingdom would come and Lord, we would trust your will to be done. Um, and as we look, Lord, at, at how you desire us to express our needs to you, I pray that uh, you would uh, fill our hearts with the joy of what it is to be in a relationship with you. Amen. I don't know if you guys have seen uh, the news this last week, um, but we have got the first pictures back from the James Webb telescope. Anyone see, see these? This is what the telescope looks like. It's so cool. Um, but they just launched it back in um, December, and it's already a million miles away from Earth orbiting the sun. Um, but that's not the coolest part, um, because the, the telescope that they sent out, it basically is the new Hubble telescope, which is how we've been seeing the deep space and all these amazing pictures. Um, this has a lens that is a hundred, uh, ca captures pictures that are a hundred times fainter than the Hubble telescope, hundred times. So this thing is basically the 2022 Model S Tesla to the Hubble telescope's like 1995 Toyota Camry. It is, it is very, very good and very high tech. Um, but the coolest part is what you get to see. So go to the next slide. This is not a Marvel movie. Um, this is the Ring Nebula. Um, and we're, we're getting to see all these colors, all these realities that we didn't get to see before. This next one's the Stevens Quintet. Um, it's these four galaxies swimming around a black hole, which is unreal. But the next one's my favorite. Um, it, you can see on the right side, yeah, um, on, this, or on your left side, um, that's the Hubble telescope's view of this next picture. And that's what we see from James Webb. And this is the Carina Nebula. And this is also what people are kind of calling the space cliffs. Go to the next picture. This is my favorite, by far. Um, that's a picture of what's out there. And get this, this is even crazier. That is just a tiny little slice of uh, one galaxy in all of the pictures that we've been seeing. That slice is, is get this, it's 12 light years across. A light year is six trillion miles. <laughs> that one little thing that we're seeing is 72 trillion miles across. And we're getting to see it in just like perfect, perfect view. It's amazing, I love it. I could talk about it for a long time, but that's not why we're here today. One article I was reading this, this week said something very interesting. It said, looking at these photos, you might find a couple things. You might find a cool new desktop background, <laughs> um, you know, a nice news story, or you could take the opportunity to reflect on your utterly inconsequential existence compared to the infinite expanse of the cosmos. Or I would say also you could ponder the beauty of creation and the glory of God. So there are responses, right, that we have to what we see. And I would say, 
often we can do the exact same thing to the Lord's Prayer. It's so normal for us to, to see and know the Lord's Prayer, but this amazing reality that gives us a view into this infinite universe of prayer, um, we might be tempted at the end of this series to just take it as kind of like a desktop background of prayers. <laughs> nice to have, I'll see it every now and again, um, but not actually have it affect our lives and our prayer lives in the way that it could. But Jesus is saying that, that this kind of praying is the key to unlocking this expansive life that, that Jesus offers for us, what he, he called the abundant life, the life to the full. And most of us really do want to encounter something profound and have our lives shaped by it. And Jesus says, well, what I'm giving you in this, as we'll see today, is of monumental importance, and it actually is for your change and your growth. A recent study done a couple years back showed that 91% of Americans agree with this statement. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. The best way to find yourself is by looking within yourself. You probably agree with that because if it's 91%, then you can do the math. Um, but what, that sounds all right and it sounds good, but what does that really mean? Jesus is trying to give us a fundamental reality of, of not only who God is, but how we find ourselves in God, how we are shaped. And he says it doesn't start by looking in you. Um, it starts by looking up to God. It doesn't start by you trying to shape the reality around you into something that you'll like. It's about God shaping you into what he's made you to be. And it it can kind of feel like a t-shirt that doesn't quite fit. <laughs> that, oh, I don't know what this is. And that's, that's our culture fighting back on what Jesus is presenting us today. But prayer is not just another tool in our tool belt uh, to make us become the you you feel you ought to be. Um, Jesus says it doesn't work that way. But if you pray like this, it will shape you into the kind of person that is just like Jesus. So when Jesus says, this then is how you should pray, that's what he's inviting us into, this moment of realization to pray the way that he taught us to pray. And the way that he taught us to pray can lead us to that abundant life that we are really seeking for those who, like those who, who love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love their neighbor as themselves. So for those of you who, who haven't been with us for the last couple of weeks, um, we've been walking through the Lord's Prayer, and uh, we saw a couple really helpful things. First, um, we saw that, that prayer is not just a transaction. It's not a, I pray and then God does this. Prayer is actually a relationship. It's not about using God. It's about knowing him. God's not a cosmic vending machine hanging out in the Karina Nebula. Um, he's not an eternal genie that grants our wishes. No, Jesus says he's a father in heaven. Uh, and, and a particular kind of father in heaven, one who never leaves and always provides. That's, that's why we start out by saying our father in heaven in the Lord's Prayer, to remind us of that reality. But then last week, we looked at this pattern of prayer. How it starts with the your, right? Do you remember that? It starts with your kingdom, your will, your name. Um, and then moves on to our needs. It makes much of God 
so that our needs fall into context. And not only for God's glory, but for our good. So in the passage that Dan just read to us in verse 8, Jesus says, don't keep babbling on like the pagans, for your father knows what you need even before you ask. So what he says next, this then is how you should pray. Jesus is presenting us with the fundamental needs of what makes us human, of what helps us to flourish. And this is what we're going to do now. We're going to jump into that last section of the Lord's Prayer, um, the needs. Um, Our needs, our basic material needs, our relationships, and our suffering, and how God meets us in each one of those in prayer. So let's start out looking at our needs, uh, going back to the passage in verse 11. If you'd pick up with me there again, it says, very familiar words, right? Give us today our daily bread. Give us today our daily bread. Hannah and I have been watching uh, this show lately. It's called Alone. Um, And uh, there's going to be a picture of the people just on the back. Uh, it's, It's a fantastic show. If you've ever watched Survivor Man back in the day, it's basically like a competition for survivalists. Uh, where they're sent off into the wilderness with nothing but 10 survival tools. Um, And they're sent off into like these remote places in Canada and Alaska and are basically given no food and no resources other than these tools. And then the competition is however long you can last, whoever lasts the longest um, wins. But they don't know how long everyone else has lasted, and they don't know how many people are left. They don't know how long the competition's going to last. They just need to survive. It's fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating. But one of the interesting things about it is people's relationship with their needs. When everything is stripped back, you see the reality of what the needs are for, for these people. Meals become this giant thing. This thing that is either a desperation to have or a celebration when they get one. Um, They feel, when they're alone, the need for human connection. And what you actually see, it's fascinating. I've seen more people pray on this show than I have on hardly any show ever. Because when they're met with their needs, they realize that it's not up to them. They can try as hard as they want to fish and put a line in the water, but that doesn't mean a fish is going to jump on it. So what we actually see here is is kind of a picture of what Jesus is talking about with daily bread. It's our needs. It's the things we literally need to survive. That's what he's talking about. And the majority of Jesus' hearers, when they heard daily bread, that's what they would have known as well. The people who Jesus was talking to in the Sermon on the Mount, they were poor people. They were sick people in need of healing. They were not the highest class in the high society. They were the people that had need, right? So what they were coming for was daily bread, but also they would have heard something else when Jesus said daily bread. Can you remember another time when God provided bread throughout Israel's story? When was it? It was the manna, right? Manna from heaven, bread from heaven. Back in Exodus, so everyone knows the Prince of Egypt story, right? Um, God bringing the Israelites out of, um, out of 
uh, Egypt. Um, when they were wandering in the desert, God supplied them food, and he called it manna. Fun fact, manna just sounds like the Hebrew phrase for what is it. <laughs> they didn't really know what it was. All they knew was it showed up every morning, and they could eat it. And what we actually saw was, was that. Every morning, God supplied exactly what they needed. And they were commanded to go out and collect not what they needed for two days, not what they needed for two weeks, what they had needed for that day. No more and no less. Every morning, it was a reminder that God provided for their needs. Now, here's another fun fact slash Bible trivia question. Do you know what was inside the Ark of the Covenant? Does anyone know there's three things inside the Ark of the Covenant? It was tablets, right? We were just talking about this when we were going through Samuel, right? The tablets, Aaron's budding rod, and a jar of golden, or a golden jar of manna. So this was so important, and God said, this was so important that I provided for you daily that it's up there with the Ten Commandments. You need to remember this, right? So what's the point here? Well, when we pray for our daily bread, what we're praying for is the needs that we have, the needs that we have to survive, but more importantly, that God would give us the needs. He would provide for us daily. And yes, of course we have needs other than food and water and clothing and shelter, but Jesus is trying to get us to start way back here with our daily needs. Because those are the needs that God promises to provide for us. And when we start with the daily needs, a couple things happen to us. This is how this prayer shapes us. One is most of us will realize that every day we not only have what we need, but we have far more than we need. And two, when you ask, you realize who's actually providing those needs. It's not you. It's God. Augustine believed that the full prayer that Jesus was referencing to was actually from Proverbs 37 to 9. It'll be up on the screen, so you don't need to look it up. Um, but it says this. Two things I ask of you, Lord. Do not refuse me before I die. Keep falsehood and lies from me. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but only give me my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I might become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of my God. So this is, this is starting to paint a bit more of a picture of why we're praying for daily bread, right? What we need. Those who have too, too much are prone to disown God, thinking that they can become God. Those who have too little are prone to dishonor him, trying to get what they need. But each party is falling into the same falsehood, the same lie that he references, that they are fully in control of their own provision. But this is the beauty of coming to the Father with this prayer, is we don't need to come in an arrogance saying, you need to provide this or anxiety, wondering if he will. Simply coming to him every day, saying, give me what I need for today, Lord, helps us to be those kinds of people that are grateful, not disowning God, not dishonoring him. 
So are you seeing how this kind of prayer can shape your prayer life, starting with the absolute basics, the daily needs? It's so simple, but we easily forget it. Because this kind of prayer shapes us into grateful, content people. And not only that, but it shapes us into people who are generous. Because did you know, notice, with all of these petitions, we'll be looking very quickly, it also says us. It doesn't just say me. That's a big difference, right, between this passage and what Jesus is saying. What Jesus is saying is give us our daily bread. So when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we're not just praying for me. We're praying for us. We're praying in a community. We're seeing not just our needs, but everyone's needs. We're seeing those of us in the community who lack and saying God provide for them. We're seeing our abundance and saying thank you for that. It, it causes us to share meals. <laughs> it causes us to share our provisions. It causes us to share our homes providing for others' daily needs when we've seen we've been provided so much for ourselves. So let's keep going. How, how does God keep, or Jesus keep bringing up these needs that we have? Well, next we'll see, he, he asks us to pray about our relationships. This is the fifth petition in verse 12. Verse 12 says, And, and forgive us our debts, as we've also forgiven our debtors. So what are we praying about? Well, we're praying for God to forgive us. Just like daily bread, Jesus says this is something you need to pray for every day. Because forgiveness is essential for our relationship with God. Without it, our relationship with God is impossible. So to forgive, um, in this context specifically, to it, it means to release. It means to release. Like like someone letting go of a balloon at a birthday party, it's no longer there. You're no longer holding on to it. That's forgiving something. But often what we mean by forgiveness, I don't think is what we pray for here, or at least what we pray for when we pray for forgiveness. When we talk about forgiveness, often, whether it's our own forgiveness with God or forgiveness of others, we often are actually talking about excusing the wrong, not forgiving it. C.S. Lewis point this, points this out in, in one of his essays on forgiveness. We, we always are looking for some excuse to lessen the wrong. We're looking for some reason, some miscommunication, some circumstance that really led us to doing something to where it wasn't really our fault. But do you see how excusing and forgiving are just, they're not even in the same ballpark. They're opposite things. Because forgiveness looks the fault straight in the face and says, I'm going to release you from that. Instead of, I'm going to excuse you from this. Asking God for excuse is to ask him to ignore where we're really at fault. To which, if, if he's God, he, he knows our excuses better than we do, right? <laughs> and Lewis says that's one of the main ways where we check ourselves on whether we're asking God for forgiveness or asking him for excuses. We actually realize that if there are excuses and we confess them, like asking for forgiveness, 
God knows that anyways. <laughs> but also, we ask for excuses instead of forgiveness because we, we don't really believe that God is ready and willing to forgive us anything. Right? Because forgiveness is this. We have a slide. Forgiveness says, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. And I will never hold it against you, and everything between us will be exactly as it was before. That's forgiveness. Do you see how this, really, how this leads to relational wholeness and how it's so key to understanding our relationship with God? Because without this, there's tension. There is something in the way. One of my favorite psalms that talks about God's forgiveness is Psalm 103. It explains it very well. It says, He does not treat us as our sins deserve. He releases it. Or, or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, that's impossibly high, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, it's impossibly far, so far as he has removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. For he knows how we're formed, and he remembers that we're dust. And that last line, is, it's not a slam. <laughs> it's, it's, it's saying God knows exactly who you are. He knows exactly how you're made. He knows exactly your frailty. He knows exactly any excuse you could ever have. <laughs> but for the stuff there is not an excuse, he doesn't repay you for what your sins deserve. For Jesus' forgiveness, this is why he, he asks us to pray this every day, forgiveness is the bedrock for relational peace with God. Receiving forgiveness from God and giving forgiveness to others. And for Jesus, as we see in this passage, the two things, they're connected. They're totally connected. So what does God's forgiveness do to us? Well, we see in this passage, Jesus is expecting forgiven people to forgive people. For those who have experienced relational wholeness with God to seek relational wholeness with others. Clearly, it was important for Jesus to actually put forward this teaching, right? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. It can't really mean that, right? <laughs> Does it really mean that? Well, in case we didn't think Jesus really meant what he said, he says it again and clarifies it in verse 14 and 15. If you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their sins, your Father will not forgive your sins. Now, when we read this, we get nervous, right? And I think we should, in a certain way, because it's really hard to forgive people. <laughs> do you guys know what I mean? Am I the only one who struggles with forgiveness? Yep. Okay, cool. Fine. Um, no. You know exactly what I mean. Forgiving your friend for betraying you, forgiving your spouse for working too much, 
forgiving your coworker for lying, forgiving your mom for being harsh or overbearing, forgiving your father for his empty promises, or even small stuff is hard. <laughs> forgiving someone for being late, for not texting you back, for forgetting your birthday, or your brother stealing the same shirt every week for years on end and then losing it. I'm not bitter. But I think we can all agree that forgiveness is hard, right? But Jesus says, whatever the debt, forgiveness is at the core of relational wholeness. And relational wholeness is at the core of the kingdom of God. Right? What is the highest value of the kingdom? Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. How can you do that if there's unforgiveness on one side? You can't. And forgiveness is that relational peace. And just like we're coming to God each day for forgiveness, we need to be reminded of that day in and day out. Am I living with unforgiveness in my heart towards someone else? Because what's the alternative to forgiveness? It's excusing people. That's my tendency. <laughs> to just say, oh, they didn't really mean it. Oh, it was a hard day. Oh, something was bad. Oh, they probably had a hard upbringing. But then that small bit of injustice, it's still in me. That small bit of unforgiveness is still there. Or we can go, go the other way, right? We can just cut off the relationship totally, preserve ourselves, cancel the hurt. Our culture is very good at doing that. But that's not, neither of those things are forgiveness. Maybe this, this story will, this image will help. Um, Hannah and I were uh, shopping the other day. And uh, Hannah, if you know my wife at all, she loves to buy in bulk. Um, because then we'll just, we'll have food, daily needs, right? Um, and, and so we saw this deal on chicken, um, this like big thing of chicken, and we're like, let's get it. And I said, I'll cut it up and I'll put it in the freezer. So we got home and that's exactly what I did right away. It's not. Uh, I let it sit, <laughs> I let it sit in the fridge and then the next day and I was like, are you gonna, you know, are you gonna put the chicken in the freezer? I was like, yeah, 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 yeah I'll get to it. I didn't. Um, until a couple days later, I opened the fridge and um, the, the clear glass on that shelf had a pink tint to it. And the, this chicken juice had seeped all over this shelf. And it was even worse than that. It, it had seeped over the side into the bins under where all of our vegetables were. So it was like everything in the bottom part of the fridge was covered in chicken juice. It was so gross. It was so gross. I was so mad, and Hannah was too, but I was so mad because I cleaned it up. It was horrible. But that's just a picture of what happens when we let unforgiveness sit. Right? When, when we let unforgiveness fester, it leaks. It leaks over everything else, and it makes things that were once whole unwhole. And all of a sudden, that unforgiveness that you feel towards someone, it'll start to spill out. 
Have you ever experienced this? Spill out on like your unsuspecting coworker, on your spouse, on your friend who, who didn't deserve it, or spill out onto an incompetent grocery, grocery, grocery clerk. Um, you know, that's not to minimize the, the pain of unforgiveness because sin hurts, right? Romans 6.23 says that the wages of sin is death. And when we carry around the wages of sin and someone else's debt in us, it's death in us. And we feel that death, right? Especially when we're sinned against. But often that debt that we try to carry around in the unforgiveness, it goes on to someone else who doesn't deserve it. And it starts to color all of our relationships. But that right there shows us something of the nature of sin. It always needs to be paid for by someone. And it always needs to go somewhere. So what do we do with that little bit that's left? What do we, what do, we do? Well, that's, that's the bit that, that Jesus pays for. He is the undeserving one who takes on the wrath and the death of sin. Do you see how that works? God's not calling you to pay for someone else's sins. He's calling you to trust that either Christ has paid for their sins against you or they will pay for their sins for eternity. Now that is, that is heavy, but that's what the Bible teaches. And the reality of our unforgiveness when we don't give it to the Lord or, as Jesus says, forgive people from our heart is that we carry that around. And as Christians, this is not meant to weigh us down. This is supposed to release us. It's not up to us to bring justice, to bring revenge, because we have justice in Christ. Colossians 2, this won't be up on the screen, but just hear this. Colossians 2, 13 and 14 says, He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. I love that picture. Where did that slice of sin go, the unforgiveness that we had in our own hearts? It's been nailed to the cross. We aren't called to forgive others' debts or carry them around. We're called to forgive them and forgive the person. We're called to do this. Say, yes, you have done this thing, but I accept your apology. I will never hold it against you, and everything between us will be exactly as it was. Not because of them, not because of you, but because of Christ. Imagine, just with me for a second, what living in a community like that would be. What would that be like if there was that kind of forgiveness for every wrong? If there was that kind of wholeness for us, right? Forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. That's the kind of image Jesus is trying for us, this beautiful image of forgiveness and restoration. So we've prayed for God to, to give us our needs, to forgive us 
our sins, and now we pray for him to deliver us. Deliver us. That's the last prayer. Verse 13, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. Now, what does Jesus mean by temptation? I, I think we all have an idea of temptation. He's not talking about, like, the allure of a piece of chocolate cake on the counter, and I don't want to eat it. I do want to eat it, but I'm not going to because I'm on a diet. That's not what he's getting at here. I mean, it's kind of a piece that just barely hits at it. Temptation means uh, here the test. The test. You're saying, lead me not into testing. And when Jesus says this, I think he had something very specific in mind. Lead me not into the test. If you just flip a couple, even just one page back in your Bible to Matthew chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. It's going to be on the screen as well. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. That word tempted, same word, tested. And what we see here, we we can't go into this whole passage because we don't have the time, but what we see here is a couple really key things that happen when Jesus is in the desert, desert tempted by the devil. Do you remember the things that, that the devil says to Jesus, right? If you are the son of God, then tell these stones to become bread. So what's he saying there? Well, if you're the son of God, will God not provide for your needs? Do you, even, you don't even have food. So it's causing him to question this. The next one, if you are the son of God, then throw yourself, throw yourself off this temple. Surely the angels will catch you. Isn't that what he said? So what's he testing Jesus with there? If you're the son of God, will God not protect you? And then the last temptation, in the last test, the devil says, okay, well, those didn't work. How about this? I'll give you everything you've ever needed, everything you've ever wanted, if you just bow down and worship me. That's the test of power. So what's, what's actually happening when, when we're tested, when Jesus was tested? Well, he's, he's testing us in our understanding and in our faith of God to doubt God's provision for us. If you really love me, why... Why did this happen, God? In fact, why am I actually worse off than my unbelieving coworkers? If you really loved me, that's what it feels like to be in a test. Or to question God's protection. God, if you really love me, why, why did this happen? Why am I sick? Why have I lost my job? I did my part. Why didn't you hold up your end? That questioning is a test. Or to question... Who deserves your allegiance? And this is the kicker, because this is where you really get kicked when you're down, and this is where sin comes in. Because when you doubt God's provision and his protection, we tend to seek power somewhere else. We bury ourselves in our work or get obsessed with finding a relationship or just watch endless hours of Netflix trying to numb the pain, right? Because we're looking for a source somewhere other than God to get what we want. Have you ever had those feelings? (laughs) Then you've been in a test. 
Anyone who has faith in Christ will be in a test. So what are we actually praying here? Well, we're saying, God, please don't lead me into the test. But if you do, deliver me from the evil one. Deliver me from the lies. And this is so helpful because we can get this idea that we, we can't say anything bad to God. <laughs> we can get this idea where we're like, everything's fine and I'm great, and as long as I say this, then God will give me what I want. But no, this gives us the complete freedom, right, to be honest. Or as First Peter says, to cast all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. No test is too small. No trial is too trivial. We aren't called to just accept the bad things that happen to us or evil or suffering. We're called to pray about it. And if you're in the test... You should ask God to deliver you from the test, but especially from the lies, especially from the lies of the evil one. Because you can ask God to change your circumstances, and they might change, but what we all really need is for God to protect our hearts in the test. Do you see how, how praying like this would change those hard things in life for you? I know how it's changed them for me. I'm not as shocked when tests come up. I'm expecting them. Jesus said, pray every day. Every day that you'd be delivered from temptation, that you'd be delivered from the test. The worst kinds of tests are the ones we aren't expecting or preparing for. Right? That's the dreaded pop quiz. Um, that's where the anxiety comes from. But if we're praying every day, Lord, don't lead me into that test, then we see the test. We know which one's coming. Don't let me lose my job. Don't let my relationship break down. Don't let these things happen. But if they do, God, deliver me. And the other thing we can do is be honest and vocalize, like we do here every Sunday, the ways that we feel about God and what's going on in our lives when you recognize you're in the test. God, deliver me. Not only from the evil in my life, but from the lies of the evil one during the test. And this is true of you, but it's also true of us, right? There's the us in there still. You aren't walking alone in your tests and in your temptation. And it's not just you who feels that. And what Jesus is trying to get us to do in this by saying, lead us not into temptation, is to look to one another for help, to look to bear one another's burdens. So please don't try to walk through the test on your own. But let's pray for one another. Let's support one another. God, please give us what we need, please forgive us our debts and please deliver us from evil. There's one more thing and then we'll wrap up. The early church fathers had this phrase. It was lex orandi, lex credendi, lex vivendi, which is Latin for the rule of prayer is the rule of belief, which is the rule of life. 
or another way to say it, the way we pray shapes what we believe, and what we believe shapes who we are. So when Jesus gives us this prayer, he's not just giving us something to say to God, he's giving us something to shape us. He's teaching us a way to communicate with God that shapes us to be who we really long to be in Christ. The Lord's Prayer is, it's, it's kind of like gravity. It keeps us grounded in the kingdom of God. That's why Jesus gives us this prayer. It keeps us grounded to this reality. So, how do we start? How do we start practicing this prayer? Well, practically, um, I gave you in your little handouts and your bulletins today a printout of this. I mean, it's very available. Um, but one way to start praying this prayer is to just have it around. Start praying it. <laughs> start living it. Start diving in and actually speaking to God these words. Start small. Don't say, I'm going to pray this five times a day. And it's, no, start small. But also, don't do it alone, right? Remember the word us. Prayer is not meant to just be alone. We need to pray with one another. So come, pray with us here at church. Pray with us in the morning on Sundays. Pray with us on Thursdays when we meet in our midweek groups. But lastly, imagine what would happen if our community here was shaped by a prayer like this. Imagine... What would happen if that was true of our church? A place without any needs because those who have too much share with those who don't have enough. A place of relational wholeness where there's freedom to actually be yourself and freedom to fail and know that you're forgiven and reconciled quickly if there's conflict. A place where people who are walking through trials don't have to do that alone Don't you want to be a part of a community like that? Because when we do, we realize that a lot of the answers of our prayers are sitting in the seat right next to us. Those whom God has already given to us in our lives to meet those needs that we have. So when we pray this prayer that Jesus gives us, it's not just some good words. It's the reality that should shape who we are. And he's inviting us into his prayer life. Praying to a loving father who never leaves and knows our needs for his name, his power, and his kingdom, and for our good. So with that, let's, let's wrap up with saying the Lord's Prayer together. It's just right in front of you. It should be in your sheets. Jesus says, this, then, is how you should pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen.